Hey everyone, we have received exceptional support for the Diaries Plus. It means so much to us. It's been a tough year for us. We're down on sponsors, but you keep lifting us up and making this show possible. And because of that, we get to keep making more cool shows for you. So today we're releasing a new series on Diaries Plus called Good, Good, Bad. Trips, adventures, and fiascos that define our lives. On New Year's Eve 2023, Mason Gravelly slid a stand-up paddleboard into the tannin-stained waters of Lake Okeechobee and embarked on an adventure he's been dreaming of for years, an unsupported crossing of one of our country's biggest lakes. Between the weather, toxic algae, and alligators, he was told it was preposterous. But Mason's journey was a culmination of years of Florida adventures and a passion for conservation. Here's a little taste of the first good, good, bad episode, Alligator Lake. Wherever you are is an adventurous place to people that aren't from there. And so it's like, I'll be honest, right now at this point in my life, I would never leave within an hour or two of my home if I could. And I'd probably, that's probably going to change at some point. But right now, that's like my reality. And I did not see that coming. Like, I I would have laughed at you if you you said that's the way you're going to think in five years. And so... It, it, all of us have to go through it. Like, oh, adventure is elsewhere or life and fulfillment and what we're looking for is elsewhere. And I think part of maturing and just part of just living this life is one, going through that. And two, <laughs> realizing everything you need is right here. You know, how many times have people told us that, but it, it takes learning it yourself, you know? Subscribe to Plus Now for the full story and access to all new episodes. As always, Thank you for your support. Now, on to the show. Most of my early adulthood featured a non-stop fight with alcohol, drugs, depression, and self-destruction. When I tried to drink my PTSD away, I got discharged from the Air Force for alcohol treatment failure in 2008. Later that year, my wife at the time received a change in duty assignment, so we moved to Abilene, Texas. There, I tried to stop drinking quit abusing pills, and started taking small steps towards a healthier way of living. But when I sobered up, none of my emotional issues went away. My marriage was still a mess. I was still broke, jobless, and directionless, and still struggled with crippling depression. I felt ready to die at any time. Shortly after arriving in Texas, I became friends with Nick Martinez. He grew up riding horseback around the desert of West Texas and became a mentor to me in the outdoors and adventure. Nick and I had paddled a couple times together before, but I was still brand new to kayaking. One rainy morning, he and I took off in my wife's truck, Slayer blasting out of the subwoofers to paddle a stretch of the clear fork of the Brazos. We planned to paddle upstream until we got tired and then drift back in the current to our truck. That's how we rolled on most of our kayak adventures because we only ever had one vehicle. On our way to the put-in, we passed a group of fishermen sitting at a picnic table. They cautioned us about how dangerous the river was that day. You boys got life vests? 
they asked. I do. He doesn't, Nick said, nodding at me. It wasn't just today that I didn't carry a life preserver. I never brought one. When I bought my kayak, I named her Jenny Colorado, the Red Jenny. But I neglected to buy a life vest. For two reasons. One, I didn't have the money. And two, given my emotional state, the idea of preserving my life never really crossed my mind. I looked at the anglers and shrugged. Mortified, they urged us to take an extra life vest from their boat. We waved and carried on to the put-in. Nick and I had paddled this stretch of the river once before. It resembled most of the rivers in that area of Texas. Shallow, foul-smelling, and pretty boring. But storms had just raked the region for much of the past few days, and when we showed up that morning in the pouring rain, we found a much different river. What had been a placid waterway now gushed with the force that crested both banks and flooded the surrounding lowlands. From the shore, I watched a whole tree, complete with roots and branches, churning downstream. It fully submerged and then shot up into the air and crashed back into the river, the branches a legion of terrified fingers desperately reaching out for anything to hold. Nick and I had to shout to hear one another above the surge of water. I decided to go ahead and grab the life vest from the fisherman's boat. It was a cheap, $5, blaze orange gas station special. I jammed my lucky tomahawk, which I bring on all my adventures, under my seat. Then we put the yaks in at a large eddy, muttered some weird nervous shit to one another, and pushed out into the current. I don't know how Nick felt, but the second we got out into the river, I was sure I was going to die. Nick took the lead and with panic strokes I flailed upstream after him. I dodged boulders, logs, and debris. Whirlpools, sometimes three feet wide at the top, materialized next to my paddle, nearly sucking it from my hands. We paddled from bank to bank, moving diagonally to and from safe spots along the shore. We clung to overhanging branches, exposed roots, or secure vines to catch our breath. We hadn't been paddling long, maybe 20 or 30 minutes, when we stopped to discuss how deadly the situation was. We hid from the rain under a bridge and checked in with one another to see if we were still feeling suicidal. We absolutely were, and so we pressed on. We crossed from right to left, Nick 20 yards upstream from me. He found a limb to hang on to and I caught up a minute later and clung to the topmost branches of an uprooted tree as the water surged around my boat. Nick looked back and shouted, You good? Yeah, I replied. But I wasn't. I was soaked, dehydrated, confused. My mind felt sluggish. My boat had taken on a dangerous amount of water and fear crept into my mind. Truth be told, I wanted to go back to the truck. I just opened my mouth to tell Nick when the current caught my kayak and pitched it into the limb I was hanging on to. It only took me a second to realize I was stuck. 
the left side of my kayak jammed into the tree branches, the right side now perpendicular to the river's overwhelming current. I looked down and watched the chalky orange water reach towards the edge of my cockpit as if in slow motion. It hesitated, and in that moment, life seemed to pause. Everything went silent, and I felt perfectly calm as I realized what was about to happen. And then, time snapped back. The water cascaded into my boat and my body lurched sideways as the river dragged my kayak first up into the tree and then underwater. My paddle leapt from my hands in the melee and everything got very, very loud. I yelled, I'm in! and jumped into the current as my boat capsized. I plunged underwater. I couldn't tell which way was up or how far under the surface I was. The current swept me downstream faster than I had ever moved in my shitty little kayak. I wondered about rocks and logs and fishing line. All the things that grab legs or shoelaces and drown stupid Midwesterners in violent West Texas rivers. When I resurfaced, Nick yelled at me to grab something. I reached up and clasped an overhanging branch. The current swept my legs out from under me, while the weight of my clothes pulled me back down. The only thing that kept my head above water was that bright orange $5 life preserver. I caught a glimpse of something red streaking downriver. My boat. Go, Jenny, go, you badass little thing. Nick yelled at me. Can you touch the ground with your feet? I yelled back. No! Nick told me to let go and find a place closer to shore where I could get out of the current. But I felt like if I let go, I might die. I clung to the branch for dear life. Nick yelled again, Keith, just let go. And I did. Water filled my ears, nose, and throat. A few yards downriver, I caught another branch. Above the roar of the water in my pounding heart, I heard Nick yell, Can you touch bottom? I felt around with my feet, and sure enough, I could touch the ground. Using the tree limb, I pulled myself slowly out of the current toward shore. My feet sunk into the clay, and I lost a shoe before I grabbed handfuls of grass and pulled myself up onto solid ground. When he was sure I was safe, Nick took off after my boat. I lay there, heaving, convulsing, and terrified. Once I caught my breath, I recovered my shoe and took off downstream at a dead run. No idea why I ran. I think I was just so scared. I had to. I ran even though my lungs and throat burned, even though both sides of my body cramped and screamed for me to rest. I found my paddle close to shore and finally caught up with Nick, who had lashed Jenny to his kayak and found a place to pull out. Once Nick and the boats were back on shore, I collapsed on the ground. After a moment, I took stock of my possessions and realized that, miraculously, my lucky tomahawk never came out. We broke into hysterical laughter. I guess we were so scared, laughing was all we could do. It's strange how we process terror. I 
took a few minutes to rest and compose myself. Then, we put in and tenderly hugged the shoreline until takeout. When we got back to the dock, I tossed the orange life preserver into the bass boat where we had found it. It floated on the water in the hull, looking inane and meaningless. Soaking wet, Nick and I smoked a few cigarettes and made our way up the muddy bank to the truck. When we passed the fishermen, we thanked them, avoiding eye contact. Then we loaded up and drove off, blaring Slayer through open windows as we passed through sleepy Texas towns. It took me a few years to realize how close I'd come to dying that day. At the time, I didn't value my life enough to think about the risks that my adventures posed, and I took unhealthy risks like that for years. It's lucky I'm still alive. Since that day on the Brazos, my battles with depression, anxiety, and PTSD have continued. But I'm finally at a place where I want to live this out. I quit drinking and smoking cigarettes, and I practice a lot of self-care. I've taken up backpacking and blog about my trips and my climbing adventures. I feel invested in myself these days, and I'm eager to see how my future turns out. I want to stick around to see if I finally get that book written, if I go back to school for another master's degree, and to see all the places I'll go as a rock climbing guide. Be it climbing, kayaking, snowboarding, or hiking, Adventuring comes with inherent risks, but these days I'm conscious about the risks I take because I'm not ready for any adventure to be my last. My name is Keith Wagner, and this is my short. That was Keith Wagner. You can find more of Keith's adventure stories on his blog, Chasing Hawks. That's chasinghawks.com. After the break, we hear another river story from Chandra Brown. Stay with us. The Grand Canyon is a place of tension. This may strike some, at first, as inaccurate, as many of us go there to experience an absence of tension. Tension dissolves as we perch near the rim, staring out across that marbled chasm at sunset, or when we breathe in the azure and travertine splendor of Havasu Creek, or when our body falls asleep deep in the canyon, in the sand, beneath the stars of a truly dark night sky, to dream alongside the Colorado River. But there are myriad iterations of tension at play in the canyon. There are the ancient forces of immeasurable heat and pressure, the physical tension that has twisted the metamorphic bedrock into shape, that glistening black Vishnu schist whose fluted spires yearn skyward from the inner gorge. In the geologic record, in reading rocks, 
We see shades of time, hues and tones of history preserved in stone. We see what time does to a place, and we interpret clues about the life the place may have hosted in centuries or millennia past. There's tension between what some river guides call the rim world, life above the rim, out beyond the canyon walls, on asphalt and manufactured foundations, and the life we lead down there, below the rim, on the river and out of reach of obligation, pretense, and the drone of hypnotizing, disorienting media. Below the rim, despite the obscene quantities of gear and food and fuel essential to a journey down the Colorado, we are stripped of all cultural excess and expectation. We are afforded a fleeting glimpse at our fundamental selves. We shed the cocoons that enshroud us in our modern lives, and we're left with a chance at creativity. We can redefine ourselves with stories, superstitions, and tutus. After a couple or a few weeks in the sun and sand and water, our clients often claim that they feel more open, receptive, curious, connected, or calm. There's tension between the rapids and flat water in the canyon. 90 spectacular and intimidating rapids in 225 miles of sometimes dizzying, often demoralizing expanses of almost currentless pools. Whitewater, compared to most of our modern movements, is not actually moving very fast at all. It comes in bursts, in brief experiences wherein what we perceive as time decelerates even as our speed picks up and your oars slice the water and your heart racing beats in sync with the waves cresting your bow. And then it's over just as quickly as it began. As an aging river guide, I also wrestle with the tension between home and away between here and there, between the imperative to grow roots and the impulse to expand ever beyond. That's common, I think, in people who live a lot of their lives outside and outside the boundaries of convention. When I'm home, in the late fall, I walk with my 14-year-old Labrador, Arlo. He sniffs at paw prints in the snow, Often, for so long, I get restless. He revels in that unknowable magic of olfactory exploration, of old holes in the ice or earth, tracks of histories and moments preserved in impressions. I tell Arlo that he can let me know when he's ready to be done with arthritis and wobbly hips and bad teeth. I wait for him to give me that signal. I get to help him here, toward the end of his life, to keep his dignity, and to let go of his physical body before it becomes too painful for him to wag his tail. Arlo and I have spent much of our lives both intensely together and intensely apart. We've made the long drive between Alaska and the lower 48 more times than I can track. 
He's seen me through heartbreak and transition, through darkness and the eventual return to light. And I've left him, repeatedly, for each summer of his life and sometimes in winter too. He's tolerated the distance. One time, my dad watched Arlo for almost an entire year as I dipped below the equator to study rivers in Ecuador. That absence made the year feel infinite. A year is but a wing beat now. Once during that time, when I was missing Arlo and Alaska so much it hurt, my dad told me that dogs don't perceive time the way humans do, that Arlo would forgive me for leaving, and he did. When things feel heavy, I take a cue from geologists, and I burrow into the comfort of deep time resting my worry within the knowing that our lives are but heartbeats, brushstrokes on an infinite canvas. I sometimes imagine that I can filter the sadness of the world through me, and I try to envision myself as a tool, a resource. I picture sadness strained out and deposited within me like sediment trapped behind a dam. I write sporadic letters to my father, mailing them to the log house I grew up in, in Alaska. A client told me a few years ago that letters provide safe distance. In the context of a troubled relationship, they are a less risky mode of contact than phone calls or the rare visit every three or four years. I can slow time with written words. I grew up in a broad Alaskan glacial valley. My father was raised in Prescott, Arizona, perhaps 120 miles as the crow flies from Lava Falls in Grand Canyon. He moved from Arizona to Alaska in his 20s to work with rocks and ice and waves and to build a home. As kids, when my family would occasionally travel to Prescott, my dad would take my brother and I fishing for sunfish in the Willow Creek Reservoir. We would collect ponderosa pine cones from our grandparents' yard. The Arizona sun lit up the turquoise and silver Navajo pieces my mother wore on her arm. My dad once gave me a pair of turquoise earrings shaped like hummingbirds, his favorite birds, whose feet are too small to stand on, but who, during migration, can fly across the entire Gulf of Mexico in one long night. I loved and wore those hummingbird earrings often. My own migrations these last few years have taken me north and south between Alaska, Montana, and Arizona, seasonally, mostly catalyzed and directed by river work. I've been guiding families down rivers for two decades now. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, Extended families on reunion, grown sisters and brothers who bicker like school kids. And yet, I've never taken my own father, mother, or brother down the Grand Canyon, despite attempts to lure them individually to the desert. My father used to talk about Havasu with wistful words. He hasn't visited that place since childhood when he hiked to Havasu Falls with his Boy Scout troop. And though he's never been to the place where Havasu Creek meets the Colorado, he's seen the travertine pools and shelves up high, 
the brilliant blue-green mineral water tumbling toward the main stem. The redwall limestone and the water that swirls and slides toward the big river, flowing in the direction of the saline delta toward more dams and strawberry fields and dubious green desert lawns and misplaced urban water features. The water in Havasu Creek reminds me of the color of those turquoise hummingbirds and of the jewelry my dad used to buy my mom when they were in love. Sometimes in Grand Canyon, I feel sadness, envy, nostalgia. Other times, I feel immense gratitude for my oblique and inherited kinship to the Arizona desert. At times, I feel like a stranger here, an interloper from northern latitudes. And other times, I am certain this place is one of my homes. The smoke of sage and mesquite carries me closer to my center. Last October, I worked the final 16-day river trip of the season in Grand Canyon. Those autumn trips feel anchoring, a recalibration of senses before settling in for a Rocky Mountain winter. One guide on our crew, 30 years old but new to guiding, brought her mother along. Each time a river guide gets to share the experience with family, I observe and wonder what it would be like. I think of my father. I daydream about having him there, in that place, with me, smiling as he rides in the front of my boat, discussing rocks, history, hydrology, birds. And then I sober to the fact that it'll likely be many more months or years until we share the same space again. Immediately after that trip, I began my northbound migration. I left Flagstaff on a 35-degree afternoon in late October, crisp and clear and blustery. I felt unsettled, concerned about the devolving state of the world, worried about my father, wondering if he would chop adequate wood for winter, reminded of the work that I had left undone before I descended into the canyon almost three weeks ago. All of this was likely agitated by an unexpected and biting wind. I pulled over at the Hanging Gardens trailhead on the south end of Glen Canyon Dam. In all my years of migrating along Highway 89, I'd never stopped to walk here. I usually feel compelled to zip past the congestion on the rims, to let the drive serve as my solo transition through the space between the Colorado River and my Montana home. The trailhead was crowded compared to the river below, and a dozen other walkers wandered the wide and gently graded trail dressed in boots and down parkas. Smiles were elusive, obscured by scarves or puffy coat collars. I walked until I found an unoccupied spot of sandstone, looking out over the bathtub ring of Lake Powell. There I sat, facing north, looking past the concrete mass of the dam, beyond the tragedy of Powell, and I closed my eyes. Floating downstream those last 16 days, I had disappeared and let go of what lies above the rim. 
Our cadre of river travelers was swept up by a current that took us in one direction, away from before. Downstream movement where indecision is either pointless or dangerous. The Colorado moves with the choked up, held back energy of a once free river who has been tamed, restrained, and altered. Yet more beautiful tension. As my father ages, I wonder if he will ever leave Alaska. And I make plans, there on the sandstone, to go visit him up north in the coming winter. Maybe it's true that our physical hearts have simply traded geographies. His resides now solely in Alaska. The desert is only memory for him. And his memory is fading more quickly than either of us can process. My physical heart now spends most of its time in Montana, dreaming of Alaska. And these precious forays to the Mojave and Sonoran deserts keep exquisite tension on the line that connects me to my past and to my father's and to the Colorado River water that runs through our bodies and memories. An awareness of passing time wells inside me like the swell of a wave. This is the tension I feel most often in the canyon now. A mounting hum a crescendoing realization of the ephemerality of existence. The waves build and recede within the canyon walls as the water rises and falls, seasonally, but mostly as an echo of human whim. The canyon walls bear witness to that movement, as they bear witness to the movement of the human hearts that pass through it, too small to stay. My name is Chandra Brown, and this is my short. Thanks to both Keith and Chandra for sharing your stories. You can take a river trip with Chandra that weaves art and writing at freeflowinstitute.com. Music today from Kai Engel, Loyalty Freak Music, Cloud9, Bradley Carter, Cordelia Zars, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars, Ashley Langles, Becca Call, and me, Fitz Call. Artwork by Anya Miller. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Call, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in.